I'd like to welcome you to week eight of our series out of Matthew's Gospel account that we're calling the one we've waited for. And uh, this morning we're going to be looking at what I consider to be, um, got to be one of the most encouraging, the most comforting passages uh, in the entire Bible in which Jesus offers us something that I don't know has ever been um, more of a felt need than it is right now. I'll read it to you. It's Matthew chapter 11, just three verses today. We'll look at verses 28, 29, and 30. Jesus said, Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. All of you, take up my yoke and learn from me, because I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for yourselves. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. This is God's word. If you were here with us last week, uh, we were at the very beginning of Matthew chapter 11, and we were looking at an exchange between Jesus and John the Baptist where John is uh, he's in prison, and he's beginning to get offended by Jesus because he's coming to realize something that everybody who comes to Jesus is eventually going to have to realize, which is that he's not the Messiah that we thought he was supposed to be. And he frequently allows us to experience things in our lives that we just don't understand and can't figure out, why are you doing it that way? And so um, last week, in, in a lot of ways, it was a, you know, it was tough. It was like medicine that didn't taste very good, but you just, you know, we, we have to deal with it. We have to take it. This passage that we're looking at at the end of chapter 11 is a, just an incredible, almost you could think of it as like a counterbalance to that. Because in this passage, Jesus is offering us something that some versions of the Bible translate, rest for your soul. And so if last week's passage was really at its, at its essence uh, a challenge, this week's passage is an offer. And so the, the way that, um, that I broke this down that made the most sense to me and the way we're going to walk through it this morning to really understand Jesus' offer and be in a place to receive it um, is I want to break it into three pieces. First off, in this offer, Jesus tells us what we are. He sort of diagnoses us as the sole physician. Uh, then he tells us why we are the way that we are. And then lastly, uh, he offers us something that everybody's looking for and we will absolutely never find outside of him. So first and foremost, Jesus tells us what we are. And we see this in verse 28, which says, Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. So according to Jesus in this particular passage, if you, if you were to ask this passage, what, what are we? The answer is restless. The overarching offer here that Jesus actually makes twice to us is that of rest, and obviously you don't offer rest to people unless they need it. You don't offer rest to people unless they are restless. And what Jesus is offering us here is something that you, you could call sort of a deep divine um, REM, rest of the soul. Uh, so let's make sure we understand what's on the table here. When I was in the fire department, I got stationed at the northern part of the county. And in Anne Arundel County, the further north you are, uh, the busier you are. And so um, it was very rare for us to sleep through. We worked 24-hour shifts. It was very rare for us to sleep through the night without getting a call. But it did every once in a while. It happened. And then after several years, I, I noticed something that um, I, you know, I just thought was interesting. I noticed that uh, sleep in the fire department, uh, in the firehouse, was not the same as sleep at home in my own bed, meaning uh, that even if I was unconscious for eight hours in a firehouse, 
uh, I would still wake up exhausted because you almost, without even realizing it, you sort of train yourself to not enter into a deep sleep. So you never really find rest there. And when I look back on that time in my life, um, I think there's actually a profound lesson that I was learning. Uh, the lesson being that where you find rest determines the rest that you find. And what Jesus is saying in this passage is that that same principle applies not only um, on a physical level, but it also applies on a spiritual level, meaning that until you and I learn to find rest in Jesus, then no matter how much rest we find in this life, we will be constantly plagued by a perennial exhaustion. Now, I love the way this is phrased in a book I've been quoting a lot to you all recently. This is from Sacred Fire written by Ronald Rollheiser, and here's how he put it, talking about this, this kind of perennial restlessness that we all experience. He says, in the torment of the insufficiency of everything attainable, we come to understand that here in this life, all symphonies remain unfinished. I think most people, when they hear that, uh, their question is, what the heck does that mean? And the author actually anticipated us asking that question. He says, what does it mean to be tormented? by the insufficiency of everything attainable. We all experience this daily. This torment is generally an undertow to everyday life. Beauty makes us restless when it should give us peace. The love we experience with others does not fulfill our deep longings. The relationships we have within our families seem too domestic to be fulfilling. Our job is inadequate to the dreams we have for ourselves. I know that hits home with a few of us. The place we live seems small town in comparison to other places. The idea we have for our lives habitually crucifies the reality of our lives and makes us too restless to sit peacefully at our own tables, to sleep peacefully in our own beds, and be at ease within our own skins. Our lives seem too small for us, and we're always waiting for something or somebody to come along and change things so that our real lives as we imagine them might begin. And here's how he concludes. To be tormented by restlessness is to be human. To make our peace with that is to come to peace. And we are mature to the degree that our own restlessness is no longer the center of our lives. <clears throat> the reason I, I like that quote is because the author is really saying the same thing that not only Jesus, but the entire canon of Scripture is telling us, that there is a restlessness that is endemic to the human condition. And what Jesus is saying here is that He alone is the solution to that problem. Now, before we get to what that means and, and how we can receive that, uh, let, let me just ask one more question of this text. The question is, why? All right? If... if, if First off, Jesus is saying we're restless, uh, which, by the way, I don't feel like I need to really prove to anybody in this culture. I think we're the most overworked culture. We have no boundaries on work, you know, between social media and the age of information. We, I, I think we're the most overworked, overexposed, um, boundaryless society full of restless people that maybe has ever walked the planet. You don't need to burn a lot of calories telling people they're restless. You start asking people why you think we're restless, and that's where you get a, a, a lot of variances and opinion and all that kind of stuff. And Jesus actually um, speaks to that, that question of why we're restless in this passage. I don't know if you caught this, but at the beginning, when Jesus is, is telling people to come to him, <clears throat> he describes people with two modifiers. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. Burdened. 
it's easy to read that, easy to read all Scripture, really, through a, through a modern lens. And in, in particular, if you read Jesus talking about how we're burdened through a modern lens, you probably come away thinking that, you know, everybody's got burdens that they're carrying around in life. Kind of like the idea of everybody's fighting a battle you know nothing about, so be kind, which I think is a good idea. And maybe there's other passages of Scripture that speak to that. But that's not what Jesus is talking about here. When he says that we are burdened, uh, he's talking about something very specific. And if you keep reading through Matthew's gospel account, you get to chapter 23, you'll see Jesus use this word again. And when you look at, at how he speaks in, in chapter 23, you get an idea of exactly what he's talking about here. In Matthew 23, Jesus is speaking against the religious leaders. And his, his, uh, in, in that little monologue, um, Jesus' issue with the religious leaders in his day, he says they tie up heavy burdens. Same, same word. They tie up heavy burdens and lay them on people's shoulders, but don't lift a finger uh, to help them. And so I'm making the point here that when Jesus talks about this perennial restlessness that we all experience in this life, um, what he's talking about is we are all burdened, we are all exhausted because fundamentally we're all trying to prove ourselves under the burden of the law. Now, I think the first question you have to address when you talk about this uh, is, is, is this idea still relevant to us? Because a lot of people, you know, in our culture would hear that and say, yeah, I get why 2,000 years ago that made sense. Because they're, you know, a society that's living under the Old Testament law. And so, of course, people felt burdened. Of course, they felt like, you know, they were always on trial or living life on a treadmill with some 600 plus, you know, rules and regulations and dietary restrictions. But, you know, times have changed. And that's true. We live in a society that in a lot of ways, I should say in some ways at least, is nothing like the society Jesus originally delivered these words in. Because our society says you shouldn't let anybody try to impose their standard of morality on you. You got to decide that for yourself. It's kind of like the, the, um, the last line in the Invictus poem, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. We don't, you know, in, in modern society, we don't let anybody impose their understanding of right and wrong on us. And so there's a lot of people that would look at this and say, this doesn't apply anymore. Uh, let me just offer that regardless of, of your worldview or belief system this morning, <clears throat> Regardless of whether or not you believe that the Bible is the Word of God, or whether or not you, you even believe there is such thing as objective truth, or absolute standards, or objective morality, and all that kind of stuff, that you and I have no option except to move through life feeling as though we need to prove ourselves in order to compensate for this nagging realization that there's a standard that we have not lived up to. Uh, to prove my point here, I want to quote a um, theologian I've referenced before named Madonna. <clears throat> Gets a chuckle like 100% of the time. Uh, here it is. She says, I have an iron will, and all of my will has always been to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being, and then I get to another stage and think I'm mediocre and uninteresting again and again. My drive in life is from this horrible fear of being mediocre, and that's always pushing me and pushing me because even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove I'm somebody. My struggle has never ended, and it probably never will. I came across those words, I think that was, that was an interview either in the late 90s or the early 2000s, but anyway, it was the moment in Madonna's life when she never really got bigger than she was in that moment. So she's on the mountaintop as she's saying these, 
And I came across it probably, I think it's about a decade ago now, and they've only been more insightful to me the more that I've kind of sat on them and you know, explaining it to the 9 a.m. You, just, you listen to some of the, the, the words she uses here. She talks about the need to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. She talks about this horrible fear of, of not being somebody. And no matter how much she gets to a place where she feels like I've arrived, she, she realizes the bar's just a little bit higher than she thought it was and, you know, this, this lifelong struggle and all that kind of stuff. And I think some people could look at a quote like that and say, well, that's just a really uncommonly driven person. Madonna probably had a terrible home life and she's compensating for it the way that she sees fit. The Bible would say, no, that's not an uncommonly driven person. That's an uncommonly honest person. The difference between Madonna and a whole uh, lot of other people, at least in that quote, uh, is just self-awareness. And you notice Madonna's not saying, I know that there's a perfect standard imposed on me by a holy God that I can't live up to. Um, I don't know where she's at today, but at least back then, she certainly did not subscribe to that worldview. What she's saying is just, no matter how much I do, I can't shake the feeling that I haven't done enough. And what a quote like that shows in our modern secular culture is that no matter how much you try to do away with uh, standards and absolute morality and, you know, all that kind of stuff. You can play the game of, you, you know, I decide for myself what's right and wrong. We just can't shake this horrible feeling that we're deficient, that we're inadequate, that there's, we, we need to compensate for something. It's really just a question of how we're doing that. 2,000 years ago in Jesus's culture, they looked to their adherence to the Mosaic law to help them deal with that feeling. In our culture today, for people like Madonna and so many others, we look to our career success to help us compensate for that. For others, maybe it's romantic love or the perfect marriage or well-behaved children or the perfect body or whatever it is. But the point is, any, any thoughtful person would stand back from our society and the way that we live and come to the conclusion that we all, on a fundamental level, we're doing the same thing that people were doing back in Jesus' day because we all, on a fundamental level, know the same thing that they knew, that there is a standard that we have failed to live up for and we are tormenting ourselves trying to compensate for that. That's why we're restless. So just to recap here before we get to the good news, Jesus is saying here first and foremost that there is a restlessness deep within the center of every human being. And the reason for that restlessness is because there's a sense in all of us that we, don't, we can't hold up under scrutiny, that we are inadequate, that we're insufficient, and we try to compensate for that with our own self-salvation schemes. The question, of course, is what can be done about that? What Jesus is saying here is that he and he alone can do something about that. So how do we receive the rest that Jesus says is available to us? That's how we're going to spend the rest of our time together. And I want to I answer that question in three ways based on Jesus' words here. Um, first and foremost, it, it, what it boils down to is three things that we need to understand if we want to experience the rest um, that Jesus says is available to us. All right, three things. We'll walk through those and then we'll conclude our time. The first thing we need to understand, number one, is who Jesus is. We need to understand exactly who the person that delivered these words to us really is, meaning this. Um, I've, you know, born and raised in the church and Christian school and all that, so I, I, don't, I don't remember a time in my life when I didn't know these words, but what I never realized until this week is that in this passage, Jesus, Jesus wasn't just looking at a bunch of tired people and saying, hey, I have a rest for you. Uh, he, what he's doing is he's quoting the Old Testament. Specifically, he's quoting Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 16. Maybe you never knew that before. 
If you go back to Jeremiah chapter 6, you'll find that, that God is speaking to his people and he says that he's laid out this path for them and that if they would just walk in that path, then they would find rest. So you go back to Jeremiah and essentially God is saying, do this and I'll give you rest. So understanding that, just understand Jesus' words as the original audience would have heard them. What Jesus is saying is, uh, actually, you just need to come to me, and I'll give that to you. So what Jesus is doing here, we, we should just, you have to deal with this. Jesus here has what I'm going to say, the audacity to take something that God the Father offered to people in the Old Testament, and he says, actually, I'm the one who can give that to you. I'm the source of that. And so what, what Jesus is, is doing, what this is in no uncertain terms, this is a claim of divinity. Now, specifically, if you've been in church for a while, maybe you're asking, why is the pastor spending time talking about, you know, okay, Jesus claimed to be God. I get that that's important. But, but why spend time on that on Sunday? Here, here's why. Just a couple of weeks ago, I had the opportunity to go out to lunch um, and have a little bit of a discussion, maybe even uh, you could call it a debate, with a guy who was, um, he was raised... Muslim. He was raised in Islam, and he was curious about, you know, Christianity's answers to life's biggest questions, and what's the difference between Christianity and Islam, and who has the truth, and is there any overlap between our belief systems, and if so, where, and all that kind of stuff. And, and so we got talking, and, it, you know, obviously, maybe you're familiar that the, one of the biggest differences between Christianity and Islam, it just fundamentally boils down to who Jesus actually is. So according to Islam, Jesus uh, is highly regarded they believe that Jesus is a miracle worker. However, at the end of the day, Jesus is simply a prophet that stands greater than every other prophet that God has sent. And, and as we were talking, I never knew this before, but he was explaining that, that Islam teaches that Jesus never claimed to be God, that Paul the Apostle sort of just made that up for you know, his own reasons, and that's actually why Muhammad came to clean that mess up. I, I, I just want to I'm walking you through this to make the case here that if you believe that Jesus never claimed to be God, it simply reveals the fact that you have never read the gospel accounts. Right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the biographical accounts of Jesus' life, you, you can follow Jesus through them, and over and over and over again, Jesus is constantly making claims that no one other than God could make. Just off the top of my head, Jesus claims that he's going to be there on judgment day determining where everybody he will preside as the judge over all humanity. Jesus said that before Abraham was, I am. Jesus claimed the authority to forgive sins. Jesus said that if anyone believes in him, they would never die. And so here we have just another example of Jesus saying something that in no uncertain terms um, was a claim of, of divinity. Case in point, Muhammad could never say, come to me and I will give you the rest that your soul desperately needs without rightly being accused of blasphemy, and yet that's exactly what Jesus is saying here. My point is no other prophet spoke like Jesus because Jesus was like no other prophet. And you and I will never find rest in Jesus so long as we continue to try to reduce him to just a good teacher or just a wise prophet or just a great example of what a human being should be. Finding the rest that Jesus has made available to us begins first and foremost with accepting that Jesus did not come down here to tell us what we need to do in order to find rest. He came down here as the source of the rest that we have been looking for all of our lives not because he is God. So the first thing we need to understand, number one, is who Jesus is. 
Uh, secondly, however, we also need to understand, <clears throat> I'll, I'll walk us through this, we need to understand that regardless of who we are or what we say we believe, we need to understand the fact that we are already yoked to something. So look with me at the, at the first um, half of verse 29. It says, Jesus is speaking, it says, all of you take up my yoke and learn from me, which is, that right there is really the command that this entire passage centers around, and it's worth highlighting that Jesus doesn't say, just believe in me, or just say a prayer to me, and then I'll give you rest. He says, you need to accept my yoke, which is Jesus' way of talking about becoming his disciple. In Jesus' day, when you began following a rabbi, you were said to be yoked to that rabbi. And the reason that they spoke like that is because it wasn't a part-time gig following a, ra a rabbi around. When you dedicated your life to a rabbi, you dedicated your life to your rabbi, meaning you lived in community with other disciples of that rabbi, you followed your rabbi around, you hung on his every word, you watched how he interacted with people in situations in life, you, you did everything you could to try to emulate your rabbi's example. In other words, your rabbi dominated your life. And, and what Jesus is saying here, when he says to take my yoke upon you, he, here's what this means. And again, we just have to deal with this. You and I will never experience the rest that Jesus says is available to us so long as we try to reduce Christianity to something that we do for once an hour in a building or once a week for one hour in a building. We will never experience the rest that Jesus says is available to us if we try to reduce following him to just reading a couple of verses when we're you know, heading out the door you know, listen to worship music on the way to work or whatever it was. Jesus is saying that if we want to experience this rest, we need to hand the reins of our lives over to him, center our lives on him, and allow him to dominate our lives. Now, that's a tall order in modern-day culture, which kind of indoctrinates us with this idea that you should not let anybody assume authority over your life. You decide who to be and how to live and how your life is supposed to go. So especially to modern people in a way that it wouldn't have to the people Jesus originally spoke to, it sounds anathema to, it, to accept this and surrender to the yoke of Jesus until we understand that regardless of where we stand with Jesus, we're already wearing a yoke. And Jesus gets that point across here in a really subtle way. You notice Jesus says at the beginning, he says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. He does not say, come to me, all you who are independent and autonomous. You catch that? So his point is, when he says, take my yoke upon you, he's not saying, hey, I'm asking you to wear a yoke for the first time in your life. He's saying, listen, you already got one on, whether you realize it or not. All I'm asking you to do is trade a yoke that's going to crush you for my yoke, which will not crush you, which will prove to be easy and light. But regardless, you and I are already yoked. So I think that bears kind of walking through, what does it mean to be yoked to something? Uh, and, and I say this completely seriously. For most of us, there's a few exceptions in the room, but probably for most of us, the only time we've seen a yoke is hanging on the wall at Cracker Barrel. I fall into that category. Perhaps you do as well. I had to do a Google image search of a yoke. And, and what you'll find is a yoke is a, it was a long wooden beam, and it had, and this is real important, it had two rings in it that yoked two beasts of burden together. Literally, if you Google image search, yoke when you get home, and you will find uh, almost every picture has two animals that are yoked together. So just understand this because you can't really grasp what Jesus is saying until you understand this. 
When you received a yoke or when a yoke was placed upon you, it did not just connect you to the burden that you were pulling. This is real important. It connected you to whatever you were relying on to help you pull what you were pulling. Here's Jesus' point. The human heart has no option. You and I have no option except to yoke ourselves to someone or something that we rely on to help us deal with our restlessness and our sense of inadequacy and the burdens of life. And when Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light, he's saying, if you yoke yourself to anything or anyone other than him, it will prove to be an unbearable burden that will eventually crush you. All right, this is another quote that I get out a few times a year. Um, I've, I've seen a lot of new faces around here recently, so for some of you this will be the first time that you've heard me read it. This is from David Foster Wallace. <clears throat> I love this quote because uh, Wallace was not even a Christian, and what I'm about to read to you is part of a commencement address that he gave at Kenyon College. I think it was in 2005, and he, he uses the word, you'll hear it in just a moment, he uses the word worship, but what he's really talking about is the same thing Jesus is talking about, which is being yoked to something. So listen to how he phrases it, and keep in mind, he's not even a believer. He says, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. <clears throat> and then he goes through a number of examples. And as I read this, just understand it's a great litmus test to find out what you might be yoked to this morning. He said, if you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you'll never have enough, never feel you have enough. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Worship power, you'll feel weak and afraid. And you'll need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, and you'll end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. All he's doing is, is coming to discover for himself in a personal way what Jesus was telling us some 2,000 years ago, which is that every single one of us is already yoked to something. We're already relying on something to help us get through life. And whatever we're yoked to, if it's not Jesus, will either be crushed by us or it will itself crush us. And so secondly, what we have to understand, we're almost done here because the third one's going to be quick. But secondly, what we have to understand is that when Jesus says, hey, if you want this rest, you're going to have to receive my yoke and learn from me, he's not saying, I know that you've enjoyed your life of independence and autonomy, but it's time to wear a yoke. He's saying, no, you have had a yoke around your neck all your life, and it's connecting you to something that's going to kill you. I'm asking you to trade that one for a yoke that'll give you life, a burden that is easy and light. All right, now as great as that sounds... And maybe you've never thought about it that way, but as great as that sounds, what Jesus is commanding here when he says to take his yoke upon us, this is still the most counterintuitive thing um, that the human heart will ever be asked to do. What we've been doing since Genesis chapter 3 is deciding to go through life as our own masters and our own saviors and our own lords. And so to receive the yoke of Jesus, to give up our autonomy and center our lives around him and to allow us to dominate our lives... 
will be, it's actually impossible for the human heart to just decide to do. And there's one final thing that we need to understand in this passage if we're going to do it. So let me recap. First off, we need to understand who Jesus is. Secondly, we need to understand that we are already yoked to something. But the third and the final thing that we have to understand that this passage shows us if we're going to receive this rest is we need to understand, thirdly, the heart of Jesus. Now, I want to turn lastly, this will be the last verse we look at today, the second half of verse 29, where Jesus follows his command and says, because I am gentle and humble, or some of your versions say lowly in heart, and you will find rest for yourselves. Maybe you've heard that before, specifically if you've been in church for a while. Um, I don't know if that little phrase, I'm gentle and humble in heart, has ever stood out to you, but Charles Spurgeon made a really important observation about that phrase. <clears throat> he said that you can, you can move through all four biographies of Jesus' life, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. The four of those gospel accounts represent some 89 chapters of Scripture that are all singularly focused on the person of Jesus. And what we have here in the second half of verse 29 of the 11th chapter of Matthew's gospel. This is the one and the only time that Jesus Christ ever tells us what his heart is like, that his heart is gentle and humble. And what he's doing there is telling us why we can submit to his yoke and why his yoke will not crush us, because he's gentle and humble in heart. And if you think about this, The people there that day in Matthew chapter 11 that originally heard these words, they basically just had, at that moment, they basically just had to take Jesus' word for it. I mean, they'd seen him perform miracles unlike they'd seen before. They heard him speak with authority, but at the end of the day, they just had to take his word for it. We have a resource that they did not have that day. They heard Jesus say what his heart was like. You and I have seen a demonstration of what Jesus' heart is is like. We saw him put it on display for us at a place called Calvary when he died for us. And it is no coincidence, we're almost at the end here, but it is no coincidence, especially in light of everything we've talked about today, that some of the final words of Jesus Christ during his earthly ministry were the words, it is finished. Notice, Jesus did not say, I am finished. He said, it is finished. And the key to walking out of this life of restlessness into the soul rest that Jesus has come to make available to us is understanding what Jesus meant with those three words. So I'm going to call the worship team up and and we'll end on that note. In Genesis chapter 1, I don't don't know if you've ever noticed this, but at the end of Genesis chapter 1, it's actually right at the beginning of chapter 2, it tells us that when God was done creating the universe, he rested And if you read that for the first time, it it raises some interesting questions because, you know, what did God need a day off? Was he tired after creating, you know, did that take a toll on God? And obviously that's not the answer because omnipotence does not get weary. So what does it mean that God rested if he can't actually get tired? And the answer is that when you look at how the Bible uses rest, to rest in the biblical sense of the word. And as I say this, I can appreciate the fact that some of us have probably never even come close to experiencing this. But when the Bible talks about God resting, and when it talks about the concept of rest, to rest in the biblical sense is to be so satisfied with your work, to know that it is so sufficient and it is so adequate that you can finally put it down. And you see that in the Genesis account. 
that after everything God made over and over again, he pronounced over his creation that it was good, it was good, it was good. Meaning that when God created this world and when God created the first people, Adam and Eve, he pronounced over them that they were exactly what he had designed them to be and so therefore he could rest. And what the Bible is teaching us from Genesis chapter 3 onward is that ever since sin entered the world, we all have moved through life with this knowledge that we lost something that day in the garden, meaning we all move through life with the knowledge that we are not what we were originally made to be, that there is a height and a glory from which we have fallen. And so to go back to the Ronald Rollheiser quote that we started with, the reason that we're not satisfied with our lives is because in the core of our being, we're not even satisfied with ourselves. And we move through life tormenting ourselves, working to try to compensate for the fact that, that we've lost this idea that we are good, that we are adequate, that we are what we were meant to be. And when you understand that, you're beginning to understand how significant Jesus' words on the cross, it is finished, really are. Because what Jesus was saying there is that on the cross with his life and his death and his resurrection, which would come three days later, he had finally accomplished the work that would torment us all of our lives, the work that we could have never accomplished because he lived the life that we all know we have not lived and died the death that at least a part of us knows we deserve to die so that by grace through faith in his name, the same healing power that will one day restore the universe enters into our lives and begins to restore us. And when we hear the words, it is finished, spoken over us, and those words penetrate into our heart, it's then and it's only then that we will be able to rest in Jesus knowing that the work has finally been accomplished. And as we learn that all throughout life, we'll learn what Jesus meant when he said that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. That's it. That's all. Let me pray for us. <clears throat> Father God, I'm sure that I'm speaking to a group of people this morning who are weary and who are burdened and who are exhausted and have felt like they've been living life on a treadmill, feel tormented, feel restless. And I want to thank you, Father, that you, you care so much about that feeling in us. You care so much about our condition that you sent Jesus so that we could finally find the rest that we've been looking for all of our lives. Would you please help us to surrender to him, to take his yoke upon us, to learn from him, to allow Jesus Christ to dominate our lives, to trust him enough to center our entire lives on him by seeing him accomplish the work that we could never accomplish so that we could finally find the rest that we've been looking for. Make us a rested congregation. God, I, I can't imagine... In a culture as exhausted as ours, as frantic, as anxious as ours, I can't imagine a better way to be holy than to be rested in the midst of a culture like this. Would you please make us a community of people who have found that deep, divine, REM rest of the soul by grace through faith in the name of Jesus. It's in his name we pray. God's people said, amen.